Welcome to the Earthshot Podcast, where we champion the Earthshot, a monumental effort to achieve planetary regeneration, restoring the Earth and humanity's place within it. At Earthshot Labs, we're developing the science, technology, and financial systems in service of ecological restoration. A forest and its rights went up against an extractive corporation and its rights, and the forest won, and the court canceled all of the mining concessions in this forest to protect it. Hi, everyone. This is Armando Davila and Troy Carter, one of the co-founders at Earthshot. Hey, everybody. We have Michelle Bender and Grant Wilson from the Earth Law Center. They are people working to get the legal rights of nature enshrined all over the world. And we're really excited to have them. The intersection of carbon markets and nature's rights is a really benevolent possibility that these two things could intersect and guide the development and protection of nature. So please introduce yourselves, Grant. How about we start with you? Hi, thanks for having me here today. My name is Grant Wilson. I am the executive director and one of the co-directors at Earth Law Center. I'm a lawyer who's been doing rights of nature and earth law work for the past decade or so. I co-wrote a law school textbook about all these movements that's being taught in some places, and I'm excited to explore the topic with you today. I'm excited to have you. And how about you, Michelle? Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Michelle Bender. I'm the Ocean Campaigns Director at Earth Law Center. I have been with the organization for about seven years now, and I'm based outside of Seattle on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples. And what I do at Earth Law Center is I'm the founder and creator of the Ocean Rights Program, so leading this work from the local to international level. And I have a background in ocean law and policy. That's why I really started the program about five years ago. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. Could you just open up by telling us what is nature's rights movement? What is earth law? Give us a little 101. Sure, I'll kick things off. So the rights of nature, kind of like it sounds, is a movement to recognize that nature has rights, just as humans have rights. And for better or worse, corporations have rights in many jurisdictions. And shouldn't nature, the source of all life on the planet, have rights as well? And this is a legal movement advancing just that idea. Some of the rights nature might have are a right merely to exist, um, a right to thrive, a right to be healthy, or uh, a right to restoration, to be brought back to health. It's a movement that's picked up steam all over the world, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that, but there's recognition in about 30 countries worldwide at some level of government, uh, not always national, that's only a few, but at some level of government, recognition that nature has rights. And of course, once nature's rights are recognized, you have to enforce those, and uh, different jurisdictions are at various levels of enforcing the rights of nature. And it's sort of a reaction to the failure of traditional legal systems specifically Eurocentric legal systems to protect nature. Um, we all know the environmental crisis we're in right now. The laws we have have not worked to protect and regenerate nature. And so there's movements out there such as the rights of nature to do something different. And lastly, I would say this is part of a larger movement of earth-centered or ecocentric law or what we call earth law to really reimagine our entire legal system. So the point of our law is not to maximize profit or to take from the earth, but the point of our whole legal system is to 
protect nature and humans are part of nature. So that includes us as well. And we call that body of law, earth law. That's a great introduction. Thanks so much for that, Grant. I was wondering if you could give us examples of how does this actually work? And are there countries or places where this has been implemented where we can actually see some change? So as Grant alluded to, this is really taking off internationally. So we're seeing rights of nature laws in about 30 countries and hundreds of them. So we're seeing local resolutions, which uh, at the local level, community level are are non-binding, but they're more of, you know, aspirations and understandings uh, that the community envisions uh, with their relationship with nature. We're seeing treaty agreements, uh, indigenous rights laws that speak to rights of nature, constitutional amendments, such as in Ecuador, and and national rights in nature law, such as in Bolivia and most recently in Panama. You know, there are different approaches. We're seeing rights in nature manifest itself in different ways. And it largely depends on not only the jurisdiction, whether it's local, national, but also the societal, the political, the cultural context. So they they all have um, different ways. But for example, Ecuador, they amended their constitution in 2008 to recognize the rights of nature. And it's pretty simple. There's just a few articles and I can walk through those articles, what this looks like. But sort of imagine this within the U.S. Constitution, where we have this recognition of what our rights are as citizens of the United States and that there's another level where then we go into the rights that all nature has because humankind is a part of nature. The first article we have in Ecuador's constitution states that nature or Pachamama, where life is reproduced and occurs, has the right to integral respect for its existence and for the maintenance and regeneration of its life cycles, structure, functions, and evolutionary processes. And not only that recognition, but it recognizes that all persons, communities, peoples, and nations can call upon public authorities to enforce those rights. So now we're also seeing this empowerment of the people to protect and defend nature, where maybe before they really didn't know they could or they didn't have that right. And two more articles that follow this that are a little bit more for implementation and enforcement of, you know, how we might go about recognizing and enforcing rights in nature. First is nature has the right to be restored. This restoration shall be a part of the obligation of the state and the natural persons or legal entities to compensate individuals and communities that defend an affected natural system. So that's pretty unique. That's something we, we traditionally don't see with, other environmental laws that are largely, you know, reactive or just, you know, permitting and allowing pollution, we're actually creating a mechanism for restoration and legal remedies with this article. And then the final article I'll mention uh, in Ecuador's constitution that's in this, this same section of rights of nature is that the state shall apply preventive and restrictive measures on activities that might lead to the extinction of species, the destruction of ecosystems, and the permanent alteration of natural cycles. So here we see even a, a, a 
another level of how we're supposed to really consider and look at our decision making and what level of human activity we allow and in what ways. And we're supposed to look at this and say, okay, we're going to measure our activities based on, you know, not letting species go extinct, not significantly altering an ecosystem to the point that it can't be recovered. And we have a lot of case studies that we can talk about. We have quite a few that show really the power of this constitutional amendment because it, it doesn't stop just here. Once we have this recognition, we need to enforce it. We need to implement it. It's been, you know, over 10 years since Ecuador amended its constitution, and we've seen over 30 lawsuits in the name of rights of nature. And most of these have been successful. They've ruled in favor of nature, and they've said no to extractive industries such as mining in a cloud forest that Grant will speak to. And they've helped protect sharks in the Galapagos. And if you'd like, I could just speak to that shark fishing case because that's my my wheelhouse with ocean rights. And what we saw, we've seen quite a few cases involve sharks in Ecuador, uh, namely in the Galapagos Marine Reserve, because that's, you know, their paramount protected area. Rights of nature is also uh, a central part of its management and the way they created their standards and, you know, what they're going to allow and what they're not. And because of that, shark populations are thriving. It's illegal to actually harm a shark in the Galapagos Marine Reserve. But as a result, we get international fishing fleets that come in and, and don't obey those rules. And luckily, a few have been caught <laughs> and they've been tried by Ecuador. And I'll just point to one example. In 2017, a Chinese vessel was found with over 6,000 dead sharks and most of them were finned. So there's this practice of shark finning that's happening globally um, that's a pretty cruel and destructive practice. And it's largely what's led to the decline of sharks by over 90% of their historical populations. And what we see in this court case is, one, not only is it great to find <laughs> the Chinese uh, vessel and crew for this illegal activity, but they really made the judgment stronger because of the existence of rights of nature. They noted that nature was entitled to co complete reparation from this crime because of its constitutional right, and that the amount necessary as compensation not only depends on just like the material value, but also the immaterial damage that's caused. So they really took a life cycle approach in looking at well, what benefit do sharks provide to the entire ecosystem? And not just that immediate ecosystem, but outwards and the local economy through ecotourism. And as an example, you know, you can get about $150 for a dead shark, the meat and fins on the market, but they used a valuation where they determined that the value of one shark alive is actually worth over $300,000. And so that's a huge difference, right? And that largely comes into play because rights of nature and including the intrinsic value of nature. And so we could see that difference um, just in this unique case that really, you know, causes us to change how we look at 
not just our legal system, but the economic system, right? And how we go about decision-making both proactively, but also reactively in the court system. That's that was both inspiring, heartwarming, heartbreaking, and mind blowing at the same time. So happy to hear that <clears throat> this work is happening and that these kind of outcomes are possible because of the these legal mechanisms. I, I imagine Troy, you're also pretty pretty enthused. I know you, you care deeply about these issues. Yeah, I was just thinking. Um, you know, you talked about like it's one thing to uh, pass a law or change change something in the legal structure, and it's another to implement it. And I think it seems like Ecuador has set a precedent for how you go implement. But I wonder, you know, are there, are there other examples or maybe just other flavors of how implementation has happened, maybe New Zealand or another place, just to give us a flavor of the overall ecosystem of how these laws are coming into effect? Yeah, I could mention a couple of things and then maybe leave uh, New Zealand specifically for Michelle. So implementation is so important. I will say in the earlier days of the rights of nature, you know, when Ecuador amended its constitution in 2008 and, you know, the five or 10 years after that, there was a lot of criticism of the movement, uh, especially in academic settings, that it wasn't being implemented. It's a pipe dream. It's not something that's happening in practice. Ecuador, as much as you can applaud some of their positive rights of nature decisions, was also uh, in some ways inconsistent. One day there'd be rights for a river enforced, uh, such as the Vilcabamba River there. Uh, another day, a court would rule that the public interest was being served by a mine, and so the rights of nature um, didn't come into play, or at least wasn't strong enough. But in the last you know, three or four years, there's sort of been this almost international dialogue amongst different jurisdictions and court systems and countries that are embracing the rights of nature And it's really interesting to look at the case law because, for example, there was a case in Bangladesh where uh, their highest court declared the rights of the Turag River and extended this decision to all rivers in the country. So all rivers in Bangladesh now have rights. And when you read the decision there, we saw a judge, um, a justice, citing case law in Ecuador, uh, citing um, biocultural rights and the rights of nature in Colombia, where it's really taken off in the court system there. Uh, looking at what happened with um, the Wanganui River and its personhood in New Zealand. And so we kind of, what I see is this trend where you know judges, lawmakers are understanding that traditional solutions to environmental harms are not working and they're willing to look to 
mechanisms that are growing in other countries and having success, such as the rights of nature, and to actually cite those in their decisions or use those as justification, which I think is really speaks a lot to the strength of the rights of nature as uh, an international movement. I did want to highlight one more case in Ecuador, and then I'll let Michelle talk about New Zealand. So in Ecuador, you know, a couple years ago, there was a vast expansion of the amount of mining concessions that were given out, uh, including in protected areas and indigenous territories. And one of the places where over 100 mining concessions were given out uh, were in this uh, cloud forest um, called Los Cedros Protected Forest. And it's this amazing biodiverse area that has all of these endemic and endangered species um, there's the, the critically endangered black and chestnut eagle, and it's this beautiful bird that has all black feathers. And then at the front is this like shimmering chestnut. And it's, it's if you look it up online, it's just this, this beautiful bird. There's Ecuadorian mantled howler monkeys, which, you know, if you've been in, in, into the forests of, of South America, you might have heard them. They have these loud grunts and roars that you can hear for miles and miles. And they spread seeds because they, they eat fruits and uh, digest them and it spreads the seeds. And just trying to give you a picture of this, this beautiful cloud forest with all of these amazing species. And it was, um, you know, relatively untouched. And then all of a sudden there's, you know, 100 mining concessions that were given to the state-owned mining company in Ecuador, uh, as well as, as their partner, a Canadian mining company. By the way, the majority of the world's mining companies are, are headquartered in Canada. And so there was a, a challenge to these mining concessions that originally came out of some local governments and reached all the way up to the constitutional court level. Uh, at the same time, the uh, composition of the constitutional court in Ecuador had changed to have some new justices who were more supportive of the rights of nature, uh, including one who had previously served as the defender of Mother Earth in these uh, people's tribunals on the rights of nature. So who else who better than that individual to, to serve on the bench? And, and so they heard this case challenging these uh, gold mining concessions in this protected forest, and they ruled very, very strongly in favor of the rights of nature at the highest level in Ecuador in a way that just sent a really clear message to the rest of the country of how it would be applied moving forward. And just a couple of things to note there. Uh, one is that in their decision, they connected the rights of nature, which we read through it earlier, to uh, the precautionary principle. And, you know, the precautionary principle basically says that even in the absence of scientific evidence, it's better not to assume certain risks that could result in damage. And the court said, look, if you're making these mining concessions, if we're not sure what the damage is going to be to this amazing ecosystem, if you can't prove to me that you're not going to violate the rights of this ecosystem when you engage in this mining. And it's, it's up to you, the mining company, to prove that. It's not up to us. It's up to you. If you can't do that, then you can't engage in the mining in this area. So kind of what they did is said, look, if you want to mine, if you want to build a dam, if you want to drill for oil, you have to prove to us at the beginning that this is not going to violate nature's rights. So it was a, it was a very strong uh, application and set a strong precedent. And there's been a series of other kind of big landmark decisions in the last one to two years in Ecuador that really show the power of this movement and give confidence to other governments that this can work in practice because they've, they've proven it in their highest courts. The bottom line of the Los Cedros case is that 
a forest and its rights went up against an extractive corporation and its rights, and the forest won, and the court canceled all of the mining concessions in this forest to protect it. And maybe, Michelle, you can talk a little bit about New Zealand across the world, which is a totally different case, totally different context, and I think really shows that it's important to kind of understand the uh, different flavors and nuances in this movement, depending what region of the world you're in. Yeah, and I think most people might be familiar with New Zealand because, you know, it really took off in the headlines in 2017. That was when uh, the Te Awa Tapua Act, or otherwise known as the Wanganui River Claim Settlement Act, was passed. It was in 2017, and I remember that too because just the headlines were going crazy, you know, river gains legal personhood in New Zealand, what does this mean, legal rights for rivers, And it's interesting because this example, if you talk to the local Maori people, they actually don't consider this rights of nature. And and I'll explain why in in kind of going about, you know, what this law was and how it came about. So it's really oriented around the Maori's values and knowledge. And those are the indigenous people of New Zealand. As we know, it was colonized uh, by the crown many years ago. And what happened was there were years of consultations with the local communities where representatives of the government was going around and really trying to understand what their relationship was with the river. And through that, they started to learn, you know, all these nuances, but also trying to think about, okay, how can we bring that understanding into the legal system? And what they learned and what really is central to the law is this spiritual understanding, I am the river and the river is me. And so they were able to really put an orientation around relationships, responsibility, stewardship, rather than, you know, the river as a commodity or a resource. And it, of course, recognizes that Te Awa Tapua, or the Wanganui River, is a living and indivisible whole. It's a legal person. But probably what is most exciting and what the movement is really trying to learn from in, in this effort was how they wanted to, how they saw that implementation. And so what the act does, or it did, is created former formal guardians Uh, So humans who are responsible for speaking on the river's behalf, who are legally responsible to represent the river's interests and needs in decisions and disputes. And so that's quite different because it's, it's really it's calling on whoever is chosen as these guardians, both representatives of the crown and the, the indigenous peoples is that they have to put aside human interests and they have to try to be that human face and representation of the river rather than themselves, rather than, you know, whatever other interests that they may want. And it really, by doing that, it not only empowers the local people to start engaging and, you know, dictating what happens on the river and, and, and the management of surface water activities, but it's also really a really good example of, you know, where rights of nature not only comes from, but where it's trying to go. Um, 
And so I mentioned that they don't necessarily consider this a rights of nature example. And that's because indigenous peoples, for the most part, don't express their relationships with, you know, other human beings or the natural world in terms of rights. You know, nature is a source of life, a living being, an ancestor, a kin. And so this idea that we have to place rights for it to be recognized as as such, they don't really need to do that because that's it's a part of their understanding, their traditional practices, their knowledge. And so the, to some degree, there there is a little bit of tension between how some might speak about what rights of nature is in relationship to Indigenous worldviews. So I, I do want to just mention that. And, and so that's one thing we're learning is, you know, it, it is a very nuanced approach and not a one size fits all. And that, you know, we do want to have care in how we engage with uh, Western law because of the role that law has played in the colonization, the subjugation of not only indigenous peoples, but nature itself. And so we're learning there's different ways to engage depending on, you know, the different situation, the role and the limits, the context. And with guardianship, that's really what's been just taking off, I would say, internationally. You know, Grant mentioned Colombia is making a lot of judicial decisions. Um, it's over 18 ecosystems have been declared by the courts in Colombia as legal persons or legal entities, subjects of rights. And they're starting to try to create these guardianship systems, just like New Zealand did, different ways, of course, uh, but really trying to learn from it. So it, it's really exciting to see, but I want to note there's, yeah, just so many ways uh, that you can look at it, um, especially from being someone local and having that, that understanding that we certainly don't have. Thanks, Michelle. It's a very beautiful example of like how we're trying as a civilization to integrate these disparate worldviews. But it, and it seems like it's being implemented sort of in these little spots, right? Like, you know, one court case between, you know, a mining company and a government. Um, and I, I was just thinking about a bit of the work that Earthshot does, which is try to change economic incentive structures, because, you know, as you know, actually a lot of the deforestation and environmental degradation, especially in places like Peru, Colombia, and the Amazon is actually individual smallhold farmers. It's not big mining companies that you can easily have a lawsuit against. Um, and I'm just sort of wondering, like, how do we integrate um, sort of like financial incentives or carbon markets with policy that are sort of trying to do the same thing, but in many cases actually uh, tend to mutually exclude each other. Like I know in Ecuador, there was some controversy about actually the rights of nature excluding financial mechanisms to try to do the same thing. Um, and so I'm just curious if you have thoughts around how these different uh, attempts at restoring and protecting nature can, can be integrated. In terms of the rights of nature and economic paradigms and structures, it is something that a lot more thought is being given to. I would say the first generation of rights of nature laws was sort of simplistic and necessarily so in that we looked at how nature could defend its rights, typically in a courtroom, or how to represent nature 
often in the courts or another legal setting, such as through a legal guardian. And now we're at the stage where we're looking at all these other areas of the legal system and society and figuring out how does the idea that nature has rights, sure, or more generally that we should give nature a voice feed into all these different areas of our society. And just to give you some examples, you can look at corporate law. Uh, traditionally, you know, corporations are thought of, rightfully so, as, as this entity that you know takes from nature and extracts. And you know, sure enough, there's a study from Portfolio.Earth finding that banks invested 2.6 trillion dollars in sectors fueling the destruction of biodiversity. And so it's totally true that corporations um, are fueling the destruction of the planet. But what if the whole purpose of corporations was reimagined? So their very purpose was to actually serve the planet and humans are only one subset of that larger planetary life that they're serving. And obviously that's a vast departure from where we are right now where corporations in many cases at least are fueling the destruction of the planet. So how do you get there? And I think you have to look for test cases and and new models and and try them out and see how they work. And just a couple, a couple examples there. One is, you know, recent Patagonia, example where they basically gave the whole company to nature as a shareholder by putting the profit-driven arm of Patagonia underneath a nonprofit whose purpose is to serve nature. And so you can say that nature or a nonprofit that serves nature owns shares to a for-profit company. And all of a sudden you can, you know, think about how you expand that. You can have an ocean that is a uh, shareholder of a company. And, you know, that's something that we're working on you can have a, an, a cause, you can have, you know, the rights of nature movement or the civil rights movement and have a nonprofit that's dedicated to that cause and it owns shares of a for-profit company. Uh, that's something a group called Cause Corporation is working on. So you can look at unique corporate structures. We also have a case where we worked in uh, the United Kingdom to put nature on a board of directors. It's a company called Faith in Nature. We worked with a group called uh, Lawyers for Nature and collaborated with many others, such as Voice for Nature, to come up with a structure where nature could actually serve on a board of directors. And we had a team of 10 corporate lawyers dive into the legal system of the United Kingdom to see if this was even legal. And their conclusion was, yeah, this is legal, because if you think of a company's well-being multiple generations ahead, you cannot uh, have a company that doesn't have a planet to draw from. Uh, and similarly, you can look at the well-being of the employees of a company, and that's legal to do in the United Kingdom. And if we have a, a climate that's stable and biodiversity that's being restored, that's good for the employees of the company. And so they did this deep dive and said, well, you know, actually it doesn't run afoul of any of the laws of the UK to put, to put nature on, on, on the board, and, and they did that. Um, other legal systems that might be more challenging – uh, in the United States, there's kind of this short-term shareholder value that rules supreme over all other else. So we're doing a, a separate legal analysis here to see if that's even possible. Uh, but the point I wanted to make is that you can look at corporate law, you can look at contract law, you can look at intellectual property and think about how would this change if nature had a voice within these parts of the law. And then to get to you know what you asked about uh, carbon markets, well, you know traditionally carbon markets have have kind of taken this, um, you know, market-based approach 
where you know nature is considered as, as a resource within this carbon market and if you you know pay people they can they can restore forests and maybe they get carbon credits and it's kind of the monetization of, of nature in a way and it, it's it has some some positive impacts you know it's great that big companies are thinking about how to go carbon neutral and they can do that through uh, carbon markets particularly the voluntary carbon markets uh, but you know what does nature think about all this and, and how do you give nature a voice within within carbon markets is and is that even possible would it want to participate in those carbon markets at all is something to think about one project that i've been working on is uh is a collaboration between um, region foundation and earth law center and um, region foundation is is the nonprofit arm of the region network where they have basically a repurposing money so its value is derived from ecological restoration and you can do that by having a cryptocurrency that is is basically um, paid for carbon uh, sequestration or for uh, as an ecological credit if you regenerate an ecosystem that's where the value of the um, the cryptocurrency comes from and on the nonprofit side of this, there's a movement to um, look at rights of nature DAOs. DAOs are uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, which are basically community-led, transparent decision-making entities that have a wallet, a crypto wallet, and they can spend it. And what if what if nature could be part of the decision-making structure of a DAO? You know, what if nature basically could engage in the economic system by having a wallet? It was funded. Maybe the funding from that wallet comes from ecological restoration projects that companies pay for. And then all of a sudden, nature is an actor in this economic system, and it can spend uh, cryptocurrency towards its own restoration, or it could support a rights of nature campaign, or it could do all sorts of things. And, you know, this works. This could work in the same way that nature could have a guardian and in, in Columbia to speak on its behalf, which is true, or nature could have a, a representative on a board of directors because it's it's now sitting on a board. And basically, you know, in all these scenarios, you want to have or you can have a human proxy to speak for nature somehow. And if you figure out how to have a human proxy who can genuinely and effectively speak on behalf of nature's interests, not humans, but nature's interests, and to do that in a transparent way. Um, there's all sorts of ways you can give nature a voice in our society, in the economic system, and all throughout the legal system, um, in local communities, and so forth. Uh, there's many other ways to give nature a voice besides guardianship, but that's kind of the preeminent model at this point. So, yeah, the movement's come a long way. We're looking at these more creative and, and uh, holistic ways of uh, thinking about what nature would, would say and what it does say in different contexts, including economic ones. mind-blowing thinking of personifying nature and the economy and giving it a means to act and be proactive that was getting me into some sci-fi solar punk 
thinking. Uh, Michelle, did you want to jump in there and add some thoughts? Yeah, I just had a, a few to add on just because, you know, even though this is a legal change, I think the economic side of it is, you know, probably one of the most important because that's how we're making the, our decisions, right? And so I wanted to mention a model that one of our partners, Monta Ito, um, has and, and sort of speaks to when describing this and showing that, you know, largely within our existing governance systems, we have nature and the economy and then human society largely functioning separately from one another. But the reality is that we are embedded within a larger system. And so if you think about this as sort of, you know, a top-down triangle, you have uh, nature is the overarching system. And then humankind and, you know, our society is a part of that. And then the economy is a part and a, a subset embedded within society. And so that's something I think that, you know, rights of nature is attempting to do is show, is show that one cannot exist without the other and they're embedded within each other. And we're looking at how can we establish a right relationship between these systems and, and that acknowledges that. And one thing, you know, in terms of tangible examples, uh, just to add a little bit more to what Grant said is, we're seeing this, you know, in decision making already starting to take hold, you know, within cost benefit analysis. I mentioned the the shark fishing case in the Galapagos involving rights of nature. Um, you know, how transitioning these, these analysis to not only include the value of living nature, but the intrinsic value of nature. And then we see that perhaps the costs far outweigh the benefits in some of these decisions. And we're looking at how we can really include externalities, you know, not just human health impacts, but impacts to the entire ecosystem, environmental costs, future generations, not just looking at, you know, the, the costs and benefits in the short term, but what's going to happen, you know, years, decades down the line. And I think that's a really powerful change in transition. Obviously, it it's perhaps one of the hardest that we are going to come up against because of private industries and corporations. But there is that that movement already. And we're seeing it internationally. You know, reports have been published, for example, by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, where they actually illuminate that we need to consider diverse values of nature in our evaluations, not only incorporating the worldviews that we currently have, but indigenous worldviews, moral principles, specific values, intrinsic values, like I mentioned. And so examples like Ecuador and New Zealand, they become vital to, to really look at and, and take a deep look at in how they can be included in assessments like this. Uh, so I just wanted to, to touch upon that in terms of kind of broad overview um, and how we're looking at the relationship between the economic system and our legal system. Yeah, absolutely. That all of that is really inspiring. It made me want to pick up some more advocacy here in the Bay Area. I remember my mother was on the Berkeley City Council from 2016 to 2020, and we did a rights of nature resolution, and we tried to give the the Bay rights, and it almost makes me want to pick that whole campaign up uh, here locally. I feel like that's something I could manageably do, and I'm. I imagine our audience is feeling pretty inspired and may want to engage on some level as well. So earthlaw.org is their website. 
Um, I think this whole piece you're mentioning about uh, just having the value of nature come into the economic decision-making. I know Troy and I both care about that immensely. And um, there's this whole discourse happening internationally. That our, our colleague Eric and Oliver just came back from COP in Egypt, and they were saying that people aren't wanting to use uh, nature as a offset, um, but they still want to restore nature. And, and you're talking about nature has a right to be restored and I think the thing that I find kind of grotesque, just in the larger discourse, even in even within a carbon fundamentalist worldview, that this whole direct air capture thing is taking way more airtime than relying on trees, this like ancient technology. And then, you know, some of the history of the carbon market has been like this uh, prevalence of monocultures rooted in a carbon fundamentalist view. If we're just maximizing for carbon, and the logic is just so devoid of like a true love for nature, like restoring nature for nature's sake is a phrase that I really like that Troy has used many times in the past. And like, what would, what would it take to really just put nature at the center and the heart of all of our decision-making? We had this fellow, John DeLue, who talked about in a previous episode that functional ecosystems are the basis of the economy. And I feel like y'all are really fleshing out what he meant there and giving really practical pathways to, to make that the foundation that it truly is. Troy, do you want to, you want to hop in there with any thoughts? Yeah, I was actually, you know, what you were talking about, like uh, Armando, you really wanted to get involved with your own sort of like local rights of nature movement. I was just wondering, Michelle and Grant, like how do people listening to this podcast relate to what you're talking about? Because policy, it seems like, oh my God, like the federal government, they're so hard to interact with. Like, what do I do except vote every two, four years? What are some ways in which people listening can actually engage with these um, themes in their own lives? Um, you know, I want to quickly mention, uh, you mentioned direct air capture and kind of these techno fixes. And I'll get to your question in a second. But, you know, I think this idea that, you know, the earth is, is a machine and, and we can tinker with it and control it is the same idea that got us into this mess. You know, you can you can trace it back where you want. You can some people trace it back to uh, Rene Descartes and uh, this idea that the Earth is, is a big machine, a clock, and we can control it and exploit it if you pull the right levers. And that that idea has failed. Um, you know, geoengineering as a solution to the climate crisis is is just not going to work. Saying that you know direct air capture is 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 enough, and we can keep polluting and. and pumping CO2 into the atmosphere and destroying biodiversity. Oh, we can replace it with this monoculture. I think that's failed. We just, we really have to get to the root causes of the environmental crisis and, and not just think about this as, as, you know, kind of an engineering problem because it's not, it's, we, we have such a small understanding of, of how um, life operates on this grand scale. And we've, We've understood enough of it to, to realize that we're interfering with this existence and, and destroying it, but we don't know enough to create some sort of technological solution. And so we just have to look back to, you know, root causes. We have to look back to, you know, indigenous wisdom and, and, and learn from indigenous peoples. And, and this is, you know, simpler than we think it is. Um, to, you know, answer your question about people in local communities, there's so much you can do, you know, there's, a whole history of the rights of nature movement in the United States since 2006, when um, a community called the Tamaqua Borough passed a rights of nature ordinance. And, you know, that was um, almost 20 years ago now. 
And there's been a, a long movement you can go into since then about how to get standing for ecosystems and courts. And can we battle against, you know, gas and oil drilling through rights of nature ordinances? And, and how does that work? And, you know, what we've kind of determined through this, this 20 years, and actually it goes back to 50 years ago with the case Sierra Club versus Morton, um, where a dissent, so losing opinion in this case, said that trees and, and forests and mountains should have standing in the court a lot to defend their own rights. Flash forward to today and kind of the, you know, the summary of where we're at is that it's hard for local communities to use the rights of nature to do things like stop gas and oil they don't want in their community or to you know, stop fracking and that sort of thing because of uh, preemption. And, you know, that's basically means state law trumps local law and federal law trumps them both. And if you're a local community and you say nature has rights here and you can't frack and you, you can't bring in your industrial agricultural operation, you can't do this and that. If the state law says, well, if you have a permit, you can do those things, of course. And if the federal law says, yeah, just, you know, get, get, your, get your Endangered Species Act permit, Clean Water Act permit, uh, whatever you need in this case, and you're good to go, it's hard for a local community to, to say otherwise. Um, but there are some things local communities can do. Uh, local communities can give a voice to nature. They can say, we're going to elect representatives of nature and listen to nature within our community. And that's kind of the approach that all these little uh, mountain towns in the Rocky Mountains are starting to look at, and some bigger ones, uh, working with Earth Law Center and, and Save the Colorado. You can say that nature has a right to health in our community, and to enforce that, we're going to ramp up sustainability standards so that the sustainability standards in our town is actually enough to achieve healthy interconnected ecosystems. That's the approach Santa Monica is taking through a sustainability rights ordinance. So not so much saying industry can't be here, but saying we as a community are going to affirmatively protect and restore biodiversity, achieve sustainability and so forth. So sort of a more positive approach. You can show up at a city council hearing and say, hey, I am the river and I'm going to speak on the river's behalf. Use your voice to kind of uh, channel an ecosystem. And I think that's a provocative, interesting thing you can do. Go to your next board meeting at your big company and say, you know, today I'm going to just speak on behalf of the ocean and people's minds will be blown. And then you can tell them, you know, there's a whole movement to do this. And um, I'm doing it kind of unofficially today, but we can all speak for nature. And shouldn't we try to do that more often? And that's just uh, encourage everyone to do that tomorrow I and mean, go to do it at the grocery store anywhere. And you can educate people. And, you know, I mentioned we have a law school textbook that's taught in undergraduate and graduate courses as well called Earth Law, Emerging Ecocentric Law, A Guide for Practitioners. And uh, the more people who learn about you know, alternatives to kind of our traditional extractive based Eurocentric legal system, uh, the more people who are going to put those into place. And I had this uh, I had this young student in California who's a high schooler. We normally don't take high school interns, but we did. And after his, his internship, um, you know, first of all, this kid, I knew I knew he was going to become president. I just you meet this kid and he's so impressive. He's like he's wearing a suit in high school. He's he's like knows all the U.S. history and world history. He's just so smart. I'm like, wow, this kid's going to become president. So I'm like, you know, thanks. Thanks for doing the internship when when you're president one day. Cause we, he, he knew it, too. We all know he's going to be president. When you're president one day, will you make a, um, a rights of nature commission? He's like, no, I'm not doing that. He's like, I'm making a whole department. And I'm like, yes, like these, uh, the youth these days are just so empowered with good ideas and um, awesome. really 
<laughs> yeah, I really know they're going to do it. And sure enough, you know, higher level politicians are out there talking about the rights of nature. Uh, Paulette Jordan, who's a, uh, a member of the Coeur d'Alene tribe, indigenous woman um, politician, is, is out there talking about the rights of nature. Um, there's been these anti-rights of nature laws at the state level, such as in Florida. Oh. Yeah, I know. But to me, I'm like, oh, that's just going to make people want to do pro-rights of nature laws. So bring it on. And so I actually think it's going to be a good thing for the movement, but, um, and eventually what needs to happen for local communities to be able to pass really strong rights and nature laws. So a lot happening in the U S and a lot of people can do just, you know, make your voice heard, educate yourself, uh, get out there and, um, you know, get in. There's lots of people out here who want to help you along the way if you're interested. Thank you. That was, I'm, I'm going to practice my uh, embodiment of an ecosystem so I can advocate on its behalf. I'm maybe a little nervous. It's like, wow, what ecosystem do I know well enough to really take on its perspective? Um, it's actually kind of related to some of the culture we're building here at Urshaw. We uh, do this body of work called The Work That Reconnects by Joanna Macy and Molly Brown, and that's one of their exercises is actually to in, in, uh, take on the perspective and beingness of different species and ecosystems and to have a way of counsel as those different species and ecosystems. You know, Armando, when I, when I was in law school, I was taking an earth law class uh, that was offered by um, ELC's uh, founding uh, director. And one of our ending projects we chose to do was uh, just like a mock city council meeting uh, where we presented what, you know, we wanted to say on the issue for three minutes and what we did was we spoke on behalf of salmon. So we pretended we were salmon speaking to the city council <laughs> and saying what their stance was, how they're feeling with this situation of, you know, pollution, dams, etc. And I mean, people laughed, but it was also uh, a really powerful demonstration. And it was actually one of our professor's favorite demonstrations because we chose to put ourselves in that position of nature of you know the ecosystem the species living there and try to think what's happening from their point of view yeah that makes sense i mean play is a great way and in a very serious way to learn new things and take on new behaviors you know i kind of want to ask a contrarian question if that's okay um the the kind of more colonial extractive part of my own being is is rearing up with this question where so we do act as if we have dominion over the earth and we can do uh, with it what we will. And internalizing that nature has both more value intact and has a right to live and evolve 
is, is a new is a new thing. And I'm, one, one thing I'm wondering about is, you know, our, our society is very technology driven. And um, like, so what about the minerals and mining and resources that might be stranded, for example, if, if nature's rights are protected and how that's going to inhibit our economic development and technological development. And I can even imagine some of this clashing with the transition to renewables or other kind of essential technologies. How, how do we negotiate that kind of situation? Um, do we just say, nope, we're not going down that developmental pathway because we're going to prioritize the rights of nature? Is it a, a minimal kind of like really focusing in on how to do a minimal uh, incision in a certain place to do that extraction and just really refine those techniques? Is it uh, just going to be a battle between different corporations and legal frameworks and people like as it, as it has already been uh, a battle we've been losing? How do you, how do you see that negotiation happening and how could we tackle that question with a bit more wisdom? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think it's a lot about balance. And, and, and that's also a misconception with the rights of nature movement is that, you know, they're saying, you know, my human rights or my property rights are going to be affected because nature's rights is always going to out, outweigh it or that, you know, the economy is going to suffer because there's no development. And that that's really not what, you know, we're trying to say with rights of nature. We're trying to find that balance and at least factor nature into the equation as a stakeholder, as having representation, her interests and needs, um, and finding that better balance. You know, with the renewable energy um, conversation, you know, yes, we need to transition, but there's also studies showing that we can't just go right now to 100% renewable energy. It's not possible, and it's it won't support the economy and our society. And a lot of things would crash if we if we did do that. So there has to be um, an equitable transition and finding that balance between, you know, less fossil fuel extraction, more renewable energy, making renewable energy, the more cost effective um, alternative, for example, the more the one that you would want to invest in, that you would want to have your company partake in and, you know, deep sea mining comes to mind as one of those really contentious issues right now because it hasn't happened yet and it's still in development there is a lot of tension because uh some you know contractors and you know those more so in the renewable industry think that that's where we're going to find our minerals minerals like cobalt um to use for batteries in the electric vehicle fleet but then at the same time there's so many unknowns about the deep sea and it's one of the most under-researched ecosystems, I think, out there, one. And so they're, you know, on the part of civil society and environmental organizations and indigenous peoples, we're saying, hold up, you know, we at least need a moratorium for 10, 20 years so that we can at least make an informed decision. So I think it's about finding that balance. You know, yes, we're saying no to it, but we're saying no because we feel like there needs to be more precaution and that we need to take time to determine are there going to be significantly, you know, harmful effects? Might it be irreversible? Because we don't really want to get into that situation where we allow something saying that it's going to be beneficial for the renewable technology um, sector, but then completely 
just throws off the entire ecosystem functioning integrity of the ocean, which we know is a huge carbon sink um, and regulator of climate change and, and is pretty much the reason why climate change isn't as bad as it is right now. So yeah, I think it's really about a balance and finding that middle ground between completely, you know, decisions that are made completely for the benefit of human interests and those completely in the benefit of nature's interests. I agree with with what Michelle said, and you know, just will just will add that you know I think part of it, you know, achieving that balance is about how does the decision making go into a particular project if you if you want to um, you know mine for for precious metals or or destroy an ecosystem essentially to put up solar panels somewhere. You know, what's the decision making there? Um, oftentimes now the decision making is you know based on how much money you're going to make. And, you know, did you at least do a little bit of work to look at the what the environmental impacts are going to be? Is a species going to go extinct? Oh, no extinctions? Okay. And you're making how much money? Okay, um, you know, let's go for it. That's kind of the, the summary of the decision-making now. But, you know, what if before you uh, mine somewhere for precious metals, which, you know, of course, we, we do need precious metals to go, you know, fully renewable and, and we need 100% clean energy, urgently um, but before you mine for those you know is where are you mining is oh it's in the it's in the deep sea like michelle said is do you know what the risks are going to be and maybe the precautionary principle comes into play if you don't or you know what about are, are we recycling precious metals as much as we can and i think you know billions of do- 10 billion dollars worth of uh, precious metals are, are you know thrown out as, as e-waste every year and have we looked at that are we getting all the precious metals we can from recycling before we're drilling in these ecosystems that will be uh, permanently impacted have you consulted with nature itself what, what is nature and this gets back to the rights of nature or giving a voice to nature what does nature have to say about this and then you know is, is the whole is the whole kit and caboodle nature positive does it have a net environmental benefit and you know sometimes you might have to look at the impact to an ecosystem versus you know biodiversity loss on a, on a planetary scale or, or, or the climate and, and so forth and so well, there's just all these questions you can ask and and different pathways you can take to you know using nature respectfully and you know we need to use nature respectfully everything um, in the room I'm in right now is comes from nature and it, it was all made from a corporation. I mean, that's the system we live in, but are we doing it respectfully? Are we taking the least harmful approach to, uh, to nature in any given circumstance? Are we listening to nature as we do this? And, you know, generally the answer is, is no, no, no to those things, but we can, we can change that. So we need to have technology. We need to solve these crises we're in and sometimes technology is helpful to that but it's not the be all end all and we, we need to listen a lot more along the way Somehow apart 
those are all really great reflections. Thank you so much for all those reflections. Yeah, there's a lot we can do to minimize the impact and improve the quality of our thinking and yeah, shift our consciousness around this whole dis- discourse. Yeah. I was just uh, going to ask Michelle, you know, we've been we've been focusing on forests and rivers and I know Michelle you've worked a lot with oceans, so I wonder how do the rights of nature apply to oceans? This is a pretty like tricky situation because also these are um, you know, not regulated by nations necessarily. These are international waters. So um, curious if you have thoughts about how we can start doing conservation and protection of oceans at scale, because, you know, it's vitally important and we haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. And that's a great question. And that question is exactly the one I had when I started my program in 2017. I was really noticing rights to nature was taking off internationally, but no one was talking about the ocean. And, you know, certainly with my background and my passion in ocean law and policy, I wanted to find, you know, a leverage or insertion point to do more rights in nature work here. But it also just it seems like a logical progression of the movement. And and it's and people agree, uh, as you noted, m- the majority of waters over 70 percent are actually waters beyond national jurisdiction. So they're international high seas. And so we do have some legal mechanisms, including the U the UN Law of the Sea Treaty and a new treaty that is currently in discussion uh, for protecting biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, Hopefully it will be agreed upon next year, but it's still a gap. You know, ocean funding SDG 14 to protect the ocean and seas is the least funded SDG uh, project is ocean governance, ocean health. And rights in nature, I think, can play a really critical part. You know, as you know, we have rivers and national parks gaining legal personhood status, but that has not yet been tried or 100% implemented in the ocean space. And that's what we're working to do. So we have campaigns from the local to the national to the international level and looking at the different insertion points. So marine protected areas, um, We're looking at how rights of nature can really evolve management and governance of those areas to ensure that they're not just paper parks, but that they are effective and efficient. And we're seeing with those areas that are completely protected, they have spillover effects. They have huge results of increased biodiversity, increased ecotourism, because people want to see pristine, intact ecosystems. They want to swim with a coral reef that isn't bleached. And perhaps one of our most exciting campaigns that we're involved in right now is at the international level with Partners the Ocean Race, which is the largest sailing uh, race in the world. Uh, Nature's Rights Europe's and the government of Cabo Verde. Of, um, and if you don't know, Cabo Verde is in the, the Indian Ocean. We launched a campaign this year towards a universal declaration of ocean rights. And this, this idea is because of the international scope of the ocean. Yes, we can have local regional laws, but because the ocean knows no boundaries, its species and ecosystems, its cycles are fluid, we really do need cohesive and shared international action 
to ensure it's effectively and successfully protected and maintained and preserved. And so this this initiative has me really excited and we're we're in the process of undergoing stakeholder consultations through workshops where we're gathering not a, not only legal experts, government officials, but scientists, economists, indigenous peoples, um, you know, t- to try to get youth, all these stakeholders at the table to weigh in and be a part of this process. So it's truly inclusive. And the goal is to have something similar to like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where we have this vision, these these set of rules for our relationship with other humans, but in this case, our relationship with the ocean and what principles and what ways we, we want to manage our activity to ensure we respect that relationship. And, uh, you know, we're starting to gain support. Like I mentioned, we have the government of Cabo Verde is officially a partner in this initiative. Uh, recently, we've received support from the government of Monaco uh, the mayor of ours, Denmark, the mayor of Genoa, Italy, uh, the former president of Seychelles. So it's really exciting to see that not just, you know, ourselves that are working on rights in nature, but others who are just learning about it. They're like, yeah, this makes sense to me. You know, I think we need to move in this direction. And it's starting to really gain momentum. And And the goal is to present a a draft resolution or declaration to the UN General Assembly next September 2023 to hopefully start this process of gathering governments and having them come to a joint decision that will ultimately recognize and protect the ocean's rights and give the ocean a voice in international and national decision making. Want to give you a round of applause? It's <laughs> 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 all great news. Thank you for personally taking a stand and taking this this on as a life mission. It's it feels very very necessary. Yeah, yeah, Michelle, I, I personally resonate with your work so much with the oceans. You know, I've lived on Hawaii the last seven years or so, and I remember the you know, coral bleaching event in 2015. I was like, we have to do something about the oceans, but we sort of, whatever, as a civilization, we don't really notice because it's under the water. Like most people don't have daily interactions with life in the ocean. We only sort of see it in cans of tuna. And um, so also just making it more relatable and um, sort of building a personal love for ecosystems is, is so crucial. Well, that's exactly it. And it, it goes back to the question and conversation we had earlier about our treatment of the environment is is so just lopsided. And what can we do about it? What can the normal person do about it? And reconnecting, I think, is one of the most important things we can do. It's not just educating ourselves, right, about, you know, where our products come from, where the air we breathe comes from, which by the way, half the air we breathe comes from the ocean and the phytoplankton in the ocean. And it's about, yeah, reconnecting and hopefully reshaping values so that we want to protect these places. We want to preserve them. And I think it's something like over uh, around 20%. If you can get the population around 20% to come onto an idea, you can get a paradigm shift. You can reach that tipping point. And I think that's what we're seeing with other rights-based movements too, is it's so much about, you know, education, changing values and finding 
those reasons that others should reconnect and resonate with this. And, you know, we could say all we want that human rights, humankind cannot live without a healthy environment. But until you can make that really tangible for someone, I think it's still going to be hard for them to grasp onto rights of nature. And and so it's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> but I think with the ocean, that's what we're finding is for some reason it is a little bit more tangible than just nature as a whole. So perhaps that's why we're, we're gaining so much momentum and support. But I think there's just so much storytelling around the ocean too, what it provides, um, the resources, not just, you know, the food we eat, but ecotourism, all that. And I think it's just such a fascinating space. And so it's really exciting to be a part of. Um, and I think for not just myself, but all of our organization, we've just been you know, even our board is getting really into all the ocean rights campaigns. So it's, it's really exciting to see. Yeah. Just a second, what Michelle said about tipping points, you know, I think it was about 2000, the year 2000, about a third of the U S supported gay marriage. And then 20 years later in 2020, it was two thirds. So it doubles. And, you know, part of that was the, the legal victories along the way for, for gay rights, because, you know, legal victories do change public opinion and, and vice versa. So, you know, once once people start to change their mind about something and as there's some legal victories along the way to kind of pique their curiosity and give them confidence in their viewpoint, um, things can change pretty quickly. So I'm optimistic about that. Yeah, me too. One thing I've, I've really internalized here uh, in this conversation is that there is a new way we can do this thing, quote unquote, called civilization, um, balancing the rights of nature with our own anthropocentric needs, better ways of incorporating it into our thinking and feeling and even our own identities. And that's exciting because the model we're in is is failing and there are new models emerging. So thank you all so much for you and your whole organization for taking on this fight. It's a very, very important one. It's very near and dear to our hearts at Earthshot Labs. Thank you for for all the great questions. Uh, I don't think I I, um, ever said on this podcast who Earth Law Center is or what we do, so maybe I could throw that in there real quick. Oh, yeah, please do, please do. Okay. Uh, So Earth Law Center advance Earth-centered legal movements uh, as well as social movements all over the world. Uh, we have a team of legal professionals and other experts in their fields, um, some of which are based in the United States, um, also Canada, uh, Mexico, uh, Nigeria, uh, France, all over the world. So we're global. Uh, we help write laws, not just on the rights of nature, but all sorts of other earth law movements. So human environmental rights, the rights of future generations relationship-based frameworks totally outside of the confines of Eurocentric legal systems. So, you know, what's beyond kind of this rights-based paradigm, we work in that field too. Um, And we provide expertise to communities, also to governments from local all the way up to the national. And we recently worked with the the national government of Panama, uh, partnering with the Leatherback Project and others on their national rights of nature law, work at the United Nations, and also uh, provide earth law, ecocentric law expertise to companies and corporations that want to give a voice to nature, to future generations. And um, if you're interested in our stuff, check out our website, Facebook, social media. Uh, and if you're interested in a collaboration or a project, just uh, get in touch with someone from our team. 
Thank you so much, Michelle and Grant. Really appreciate the time you spent today and the work you're doing. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I do just want to add one final thing, maybe as an ending, is that anyone can be a part of this movement. You don't need to be a lawyer. You don't need to have a law background. Uh, we have partnered with just community members who are, you know, school teachers. They, they work in retail, scientists, and everyone can have a part to play in, in an environmental movement. And you, you don't need a law degree. So I want to really highlight that, that, you know, if you're wanting to learn more, there's always a space for you in environmental movement, including rights of nature. Yay. We can all make it happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope this is the beginning of a long friendship between our, our two organizations. Thank you so much for joining us. And stay tuned. I'm going to try and convince these two lovely people to do a, a mini episode where we read uh, the text of a legal document, maybe it's some musical accompaniment just to give you a flavor and a feel for what the language is that empowers nature in the way that they're describing and protect nature for nature's sake. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot podcast. This episode was edited by Theodore Lowry from StoryPaths. And the music you heard during the intro was by Little Whale. To learn more about Earthshot Labs, visit our website, www.earthshot.eco. Okay.